Right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. My name is David Rossi. Some of you may, in fact, know me by Dave Zed. I host and run the YouTube channel Generation Zed, where we focus on a multitude of different aspects pertaining to the sciences, physics, all of that, you name it. But I'm also the founder and CEO of SALT LLC, which stands for Strategic Analysis and Assessment of Longitudinal Technologies. I'm extremely grateful, humbled, and delighted to be here. And I would like to state that before we move forward with this presentation, I would like to thank all of you for being understanding of this being a pre-recording simply because I did in fact need approval uh, for this presentation to be publicly um, presented. So, the reason I call today's uh, presentation a new perspective on old physics is because I would dare to postulate that what we call classical mechanics or classical physics, whether theoretically the models um, on paper or in the laboratory, are by definition being put on notice by quantum mechanics, particularly in the different areas in which SED, stochastic electrodynamics, has found a way over the decades to merge a semi-classical concept of physics with a quantum unification, which has then ultimately led to the discussion of, you know, stochastic electrodynamics being on its last leg and that merging itself into the overall quantum unification of such Hence why I call today's presentation a new perspective on old physics, specifically focusing on mass, time, vacuum extractability, and quantum unification. Now, before starting this presentation, to give an overarching concept of more so the philosophical motivation behind this, is that according, uh, according to Dr. Niels Bohr, there are trivial truths and then there are great truths. The opposite of a trivial truth is plainly false but the opposite of a great truth is also true. What's interesting about this is that I find there to be a unique correlation between this particular quote, obviously the rest of the presentation that I'll be giving today, in addition to a claim that we could all potentially agree on here as people that are interested in the sciences in a multitude of areas, which is that a New York Times article from May 4th, 1935, over a hundred years ago, discusses how Einstein attacks quantum theory because he finds it is not complete even though it is correct, which speaks again to what I just brought up a minute or two ago, this sort of mergence between a semi-classical model and a quantum unification, if there could be one, if at all. I'm claiming in today's presentation there in fact is, and there are a multitude of avenues to pursue in order to obtain a unification of such, or a sort of, I guess we could call, theory of everything, or unified field theory, whether in the laboratory or theoretically, both numbers and practicality. So, let's start very simply with basic Newtonian physics, and of course the Lorentz force. We see here on our screen that all of you are familiar with the Lorentz force equation. In addition to the concept of being able to spark a charge proportional to acceleration in order to get an object to move in general. Hence why Newton correctly stated force equals mass times acceleration. Because when you apply a force or a charge proportional to acceleration, that object will in fact be able to move. Now, when that object is moved, however it is, however it is moved in the, in the laboratory or in general or anything of the sort, right? What ends up happening is, according to a lot of people, whether it's uh, Dr. Sarfati, Dr. Paez, Dr. Pudoff, with the concepts of the vacuum and, and the super force and, and, and zero-point energy, we see that there may in fact be vacuum fluctuations 
after this object is being moved, vacuum fluctuations literally in what we would call empty space, which would denote the possibility of an ether. It is very similar to the energetic equivalent of putting a microphone to a speaker and getting a non-stop squeal. The particles generate the fields, the fields then, uh, uh, I guess we could say, collect the particle fluctuations and then quote-unquote spit out new or fresh particles if you will so it is one giant cosmological feedback system overall as a matter of fact i will say without getting too ahead of myself when looking whether in the laboratory but i will focus on the theoretical modeling and calculations if one accounts for even including a semi-classical model whether it's hamiltonian or lagrangian functions one can find that if one treats the vacuum or the zero point uh, fluctuation background as a real phenomena if you will the numbers begin to fall into place a lot more easier with that said I noticed some very peculiar similarities over the decades, as a matter of fact, even over the millennia. We see on the far left-hand side the infinity symbol in which we are all familiar with. We see in the center uh, part of our screen here, we see the Ourobora, which seems to be quite reminiscent of the infinity symbol. And then on the far right-hand side, I would like to point your folks' attention to a presentation by Dr. Pudoff, in which was conducted, I believe, I could be wrong here, but in Stockholm in the 1990s, where we see that he, even Dr. Pudoff himself, had claimed that the particles generate the fields, the fields allow the particles to fluctuate, and it's a constant giant cosmological feedback system very similar to that of a toroid field. With that said, I would like to point out that I found a very peculiar historical pattern, particularly pertaining to the far left-hand side, which is Dr. Salvat one of Dr. Salvatore Paez's patents, in addition to the middle picture of the, uh, on the screen here, which is from, I believe, the 13-1400s, when the, uh, the Knights Templars were in uh, ancient Egypt, uh, approximately. And at the very bottom, we see here what I... Uh, have not coined personally but would call pine cones kissing if you will from ancient uh, samaria and mesopotamia now when we take these three images and we we cross-reference them with the quantum viewpoint of the hydrogen wave function on the right hand side we find some very interesting similarities with respect to the visual geometries of such now this then brings us to a postulation in which I am postulating that Newton's third law is wrong. In other words, for every action there is not a reaction so much as there is an anti-action. Anti, specifically meaning the ability to perturb and manipulate a consequence of an initial and or inertial action from the gauge symmetry point of view within the local metric of whatever one is effectuating or attempting to effectuate. Now the question then becomes, if so, what would these anti-actions be based on? I would like to point everyone uh, very strongly to Dr. Pudoff's paper, Electromagnetic Potentials Basis for Energy Density and Power Flux, particularly where he says here in his background uh, uh, discussion, quote, though little discussed, there exists a rich literature on alternative definitions of electromagnetic energy density and power flux the general purpose of which has been to attempt to bring clarity to some of the ambiguities associated with the standard definitions, end quote. Again, what we're seeing here is that the potentials themselves, the electromagnetic potentials, are the foundation for this new type of energetic phenomenon 
dare I say, allowing for COP coefficient of performance over one to occur, not just in a in a you know in a power sense of being able to power the home, but perhaps even in a propulsion sense and in many other areas as well. But we'll stick with propulsion and inertia for today's presentation, uh, generally speaking. So one doesn't have to believe me or have to you know again. Uh, listen precisely to what I'm saying or adequately so much as one would need to even look at Richard Feynman's uh, quotes and we see here that the source of such quotations and lectures are cited accurately down below and I quote in the general theory of quantum electrodynamics one takes the vector and scalar potentials as the fundamental quantities in a set of equations that replace the Maxwell equations the E and B fields the electric and magnetic fields are slowly disappearing from the modern expression of physical laws and they are being replaced by a and phi or again the magnetic vector potential and the magnetic flux itself as a matter of fact fun little side a uh, side note or side story this is just a general approximation of the story but when richard feynman and john wheeler had found that the A field could in fact be separated from the B field, particularly with, uh, within that of uh, utilizing the Del Cross operator. It was thought, because of the amount of power extraction from the potentials, of which we see here Dr. Pudoff is arguing, that it was initially thought that the power, because of how, I, I guess you could say, extravagant it was, the output compared to the input, was vastly uh, outdoing the input. And so, it was thought initially that this was just an artifact of the mathematics. It, people thought, my gosh, it's a, you know it can't be possible, but it turns out that there's enough energy in the room that you are sitting in, theoretically, to evaporate all of the world's oceans, if you could get it all up in the room. But this is in fact uh, feasible and has been calculated. Now, I would like to focus particularly on the Lamb shift. Willis Lamb was awarded the Nobel Prize for showcasing that the vacuum's alteration, and to be specific, when I say the vacuum, I say the ether, I'm speaking of what we'd call empty space, the vacuum's alteration of the energy level of an electron resides within the hydrogen atom, which is interesting because the difference in energy frequency units, or the bandwidth if you will, is a very particular number in the megahertz range, which is something I would like everyone to very uh, kindly keep in mind and the energy density of such exceeds that of the sun's surface which speaks to the idea that if it could be extracted if this power could be extracted via mechanisms like the lamb shift or a casimir effect or van der waals forces or anything like this the numbers seem to substantiate the ability to uh, again attain such vast amounts of power now the question then becomes, could this be used practically? Could it be extracted for practical use? Such may imply, when I mean such, I'm speaking to the lamp shift post, uh, concept, that when the vectors are summed to zero, both theoretically and in the laboratory, the potentials become more quote-unquote real than the fields themselves due to making something real quote-unquote from nothing or from empty space which ideally would speak to the concept of as above so below philosophically it would speak to this idea of again um order from chaos something from nothing generally speaking merging physics with metaphysics and i will be more specific i assure you and i also would like to state that i agree very avidly and strongly with dr sal paez when he says that philo science without philosophy is like a, a seed without water now when the vectors are summed to zero 
Such may allow for thermodynamic manipulation, perturbation, and extraction from the vacuum for practical use purposes. This then suggests, as I had previously mentioned, that the A field, the magnetic vector potential field, can be separated from the B field, theoretically using that of the Delcross operator, which allows for integral relativistic implementations of the Dirac equation in 3D without runaways. I would like to very kindly point to the work of people like uh, Mr. Dr. Rueda, Dr. Um, uh, Bernache, uh, forgive me the names off the top of my head, Dr. Pudoff, uh, Dr. Sarfati, Dr. Davis, uh, many, many others, I will say. Uh, forgive me if I have not mentioned all the names uh, in which I, I feel I am obligated to give credit to. Now, to my knowledge, this is where things get interesting. No Western university has calculated the magnitude of a potential, which is interesting. The question becomes why? I think it's because if one goes to read the original papers, circa mid to late 1800s, not what someone wrote about the papers, but the actual original sources, Gibbs, Heaviside, uh, Maxwell, Lorentz, pointing, we will find that even the standard pointing theorem, of which is generally all of our uh, engineering models are based off of today, in practicality as well, the standard pointing theorem denotes that a potential is infinite and reaches out far way past the wire. So for example, if electricity, electricity does, does not run through the copper wire, it hugs the wire. And then the magnitude of the potential is literally infinite. It stretches out way past the wire. So at best, maybe I'm incorrect here, but at best I could only find within the Western universities that potential intensity is accounted for, which is interesting because that is very different than the magnitude of a potential. Again, potential intensity seems to be calculated in the textbooks that I have read upon researching for this presentation today based off of an intensity of a potential that is just based off of an arbitrary unit point charge randomly stuck in, in you know, empty spaces, they call it. But even in that regard, the standard pointing theorem speaks to this concept of the potential being infinite going way past the wire. So... We can see some of this substantiated in regards to a theoretical modeling, which is, of course, Dr. Pudoff's polarizable vacuum theory, particularly the second paragraph where, quote, we see that accompanying the usual Lorentz force is an additional dielectric force proportional to the gradient of the vacuum dielectric constant, which would speak to this idea of curvature in loop quantum gravity. Right, particularly the work of uh, Mr. Dr. Carlo Rovelli and the, the tracing within loop quantum gravity, as well as the concept that this curvature of space-time may speak to a larger state of unification. Not only that, but we see, and I quote, the usual Lorentz force is an additional dielectric force proportional to the gradient of the vac vacuum dielectric constant. This proportionality seems to be substantiating that or at least being able to ascertain the veracity of a unified field theory with respects to what we had looked at earlier about the particles generate the fields the fields allow the particles to fluctuate so on and so forth now you may say dave this is all fine and dandy talk but do we have any evidence for this well i was able to obtain a 1999 popular mechanics article called taming gravity i'm sure many of you here are familiar with dr ning lee specifically and of course we all you know there's been a lot of rumors and speculation as to you know i i believe she has since passed away may she rest in peace uh but as to what her work was doing ever since the late 90s you know up until uh, her her uh passing 
What's interesting, however, is that, again, I am quoting the Popular Mechanics article, speaking to the manipulation of mass, and I quote, Basically, you are adding a couple of vectors to zero, to zero it out or enhance it, to zero gravity out or enhance it, end quote. This is not my, these are not my words, these are the words of Dr. Larry Smalley, the former chairman of the University of Alabama at Huntsville Physics Department. The question then becomes, after the vectors are summed to zero, as we've seen in our previous slides and images that seem to be reminiscent of a lot of ancient, uh, we could say, uh, cave drawings, scriptures, descriptions, you name it, what does this say about mass in general? Manipulating mass seems to be able to show that this allows for a negation or attraction of particle distribution fluctuations very similar to waves within a body of water or I will give a more practical example when you are changing the uh, bed sheets of your bed literally um, as you're planning to wash them as you pull the blankets off the bed there's sort of that wave propagation exact same movement this allows for the manipulation of the relative perception of local time local space and the local objects within that space-time uh, metric it, of course in correspondence with other metric variabilities but just to keep it simple for the sake of this presentation manipulating mass also denotes a correlation between the speed of light angular acceleration angular momentum angular velocity and how such is perceived across time which speaks to this concept of again super determinism and many other things how is this done theoretically it is done by manipulating epsilon and mu the vacuum permittivity and the vacuum permeability or the electric permittivity and magnetic permeability very simple in that particular regard now you may say dave that's all fine and dandy but do we have a practical example absolutely so say we have a laboratory right and the laboratory is split into two rooms with a wall dividing it down the center one side of the laboratory is in fact a, a glass prism where laser beams outside of the prism are shooting into the glass prism. The other half of the laboratory is just simply an observational room for the to observe and uh, um, obtain the data and all of this. So once laser beams are shot into the prism, particularly multiple different beams, what happens is the laser beam begins to curve within the gradients of the prism via that of the kinetic, photonic, and phononic oscillations. Now what happens is, the curvature inside of that glass prism, if there were to be someone or something inside that prism in the laboratory, in the, in the first half of the room, you would see sort of a rainbow-like effect in addition to a potential Davies Unruh thermal bath effect, if you will, right? Now, the laboratory observer not in the prism is only going to see the flat curvature of that energetic phenomenon relative to the other side of the laboratory he is not going to see that phenomenon in 3d let alone 4d 5d you know all the way up to 12 space he is not going to see or experience that phenomenon in curved space-time he or she is only going to see the flat curvature and intersection of that phenomenon now this then makes us ask okay what does this say about empty space and our earlier discussed potentials. 
it says that they have the ability, as I just mentioned, to become an active local quote-unquote engine, literally anywhere where there's what we'd call empty space, has the ability to become a local engine via oscillatory concepts and approaches, one of them being ER equals EPR, the Einstein-Rosenberg uh, model. Such can in fact be traced in loop quantum gravity, Again, particularly Dr. Carlo Rovelli and his team's work on, I believe, quantum split sources. Uh, for anyone willing to discuss that, you're more than welcome to, to reach out to me directly. And I, I love talking about uh, those concepts within loop quantum gravity. Such can be traced via delta T variables in optics, which is interesting. It brings us back to that correlation between mass, speed of light. You know, we see something happening here now. What's interesting is that on the left-hand side, we have an ATIP DIA file, which shows, particularly the second half of the paragraph, an inter-universe wormhole image at the top and an intra-universe wormhole at the bottom. But I would like to quote that Hotchberg and Visser proved that it is only the behavior near the wormhole throat that is critical to understanding the physics, and that a generic throat can be defined without... without having to make all of the symmetry assumptions and without assuming the existence of an asymptotically a flat spacetime in which to embed the wormhole, end quote, which is very, very peculiar because it speaks to this idea of, again, the pine cones kissing. If one can understand the tip of such pine cones kissing, as we looked at some of the images prior, whether modern or ancient, we will find that there seems to be an understanding of just knowing what the tip's geometrical uh, values and functions are and limits and, and symmetries, we can then integrate it exponentially to the rest of that wormhole in a Lorentz propaga propaga propagative sense, excuse me. What I mean by this essentially is that if we were to look at a paper by Dr. Ibison and Dr. Pudoff on the Lorentz 3D Dirac um, we could see, uh, we could say, excuse me, integral relativistic, uh, integral relativistic 3D Lorentz Dirac equation without runaways. I'm paraphrasing that paper, forgive me, but we will find that you can, in fact, implement the Dirac equation without it having runaways in an integrated relativistic form, which is very, very peculiar, particularly when we notice that over here on the right hand side of our Wikipedia uh, page, again, Noticing here when we're looking at physical optics, there are, and I quote, there are different forms of the pointing vector. The most common are in terms of the E, B, or E and H fields. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the far right-hand side, and end quote, you will see that delta T in the dimension section is dealt with quite avidly. So you don't have to believe me again in this particular regard. Now, with that said, we will also find that the pointing vector seems to be the most standard common usage but even as i said earlier the pointing vector shows that the energy propagation expands way past the wire in which the energy is occurring on the magnitude is infinite same same thing with the field by the way now the question then becomes if we're following hochberg and visser's approach here with respects to dr pudoff and many many others the wormhole throat behavior may in fact propagate what we call time. This inertial frame of time is propelled from the zero or starting point of the vector summations. So we see on the left-hand side image that the zero point, literally the coordinate where it says zero, the very bottom right of the left-hand side image, is the beginning 
of a gradient's curvature, as Dr. Prudhoff's polarizable vacuum paper showed, that is, again, proportional to the propagation of this vacuum dielectric constant, of which the speed of light also seems to be proportional to as well. Now, those within the field of this energetic phenomenon would experience wormhole throat behavior very differently than that of those external to the field, very similar to the prism example we had given earlier. Now, you may say again, Dave, this is all fine and dandy talk, but what are some ways of practicality and using such vacuum energy to be extracted in the laboratory? Well, one way is a charged plate collapse. Now, for propulsion or inertial uses, it's not practical. As a matter of fact, I believe this was a proposition brought forward many decades ago by Dr. Robert Forward, I believe at Hughes Laboratory um, under the uh, Air Force Research Laboratory. I could be incorrect about AFRL there, but his whole hypothesis was, well, if I bring a bunch of stacked plates together, aluminum plates, and I charge them electrically, because of the Casimir and van der Waals uh, forces and effect, the energy could be extracted from in between the plates, and then we can store that energy for use. Now, for propul propulsion and inertia, it's not practical. Um, but it does lead to many other things like what we now know to be flat panel displays and many other things of the sort. The reason it's not practical is because it takes far more energy to induce an effect on the plates being charged in, uh, compared to what you would extract from uh, the effect in between the plates. A second variation of which seems to be far more feasible is a plasma punch or pulse. A, basically, guys, a very high-tech version of rubbing your feet on the carpet and touching a doorknob to get a jolt or a shock, right? Um, you can also pulse certain mechanisms with respects to these plasma uh, oscillations and resonances and what have you. Um, but another way for those interested uh, in work with liquids and water is a sonoluminescence angle again, light and liquid, where very fast turbulent fluids with bubbles in the fluid collapse the bubbles due to, again, the zero vectors, pressure, zero ve vector pressure force. The vectors are being summed to zero. Every time one bubble collapses and that wave collapses, if you will, you get 100,000 photons in 50 picoseconds from one tiny little light burst. So th this is a very, very, very big effect. This is not some small stuff. Now, various other practical forms are indeed feasible as well, um, in which do not, in again, in my opinion, both based on theoretical modeling and experiments in the laboratory, in which would not require superconductors or metamaterials. I have nothing against them. I just want to show in this particular presentation that superconductors or metamaterials are not necessarily always needed, in my humble opinion. Um, but again, that's just that's just me. Now, the current issues or concerns, because again, we can talk about how this is all great, but how can we address it and then how can we help resolve or solve it? The current issues or concerns are that anything utilizing the U1 models, whether it's in... Uh, classical electrodynamics, uh, whether it's in uh, chemistry, whether it's in optics, you name it, the U1 models across academia will not work because they assume a flat space-time. So numerically they will fall apart. This also speaks to the laboratory observer with the prism example. The, lab the uh, scientist who is not in the glass prism is only seeing the flat curvature of that energetic phenomenon which the U1 model will show, but at, that's the limit, that's it. So the U1 model assumes a flat space-time which disallows and prevents seamless lattice-ion angular integration 
into the space-time metric, of which could be calculated again with Ritchie tensors, uh, you know, Hermitian operators, and many, many other tensors as well, uh, just to give some idea for those that are on the theoretical side of things. Now, again, we addressed the problems and concerns. Let's take a look at some of the solutions. Some of the solutions I would propose would be SU2 group symmetry, particularly uh, Dr. Miguel Javier, I believe out of MIT, um, but I could be wrong as to uh, that particular university. In addition to E.T. Whitaker's 1903 and 1904 infolding paper as well, I would very strongly advise people to look at that. Of course, Feynman's, Richard Feynman's scattering operators. And very specifically, these last two points, I'd like to give an example for the chemists or for those interested in, in more so in chemistry. To pursue a concept of stabilized disequilibrium, both in propulsion, but I'm going to use a chemist example here. So when people say they, for example, there's an energetic phenomenon and they see some type of um, sulfuric acid, they think, or some type of what's been called, you know, uh, sort of gooey spider web, uh, it's been called sometimes, you know, angel hair, if you will. A lot of people say, oh, that's just sulfuric acid. I would beg to differ. Why do I beg to differ? Well, say in the laboratory, practically, we have an acid and we have a hydroxide, and we neutralize the two. It is normally known, particularly within the U1 models, as, as it's been taught to all of us, that during the neutralization of these two chemicals, the acid and the hydroxide, there is supposed to be an, a, a, a heat coming from that neutralization. In other words, there is supposed to be an exothermic reaction. But in this particular case, there isn't. So that tells us there are some peculiar properties within this particular acid and particular hydroxide that allows for disequilibrium to become stabilized in conditions where it normally would not be stable. So that's why when people say, oh, oh, look, that's just sulfuric acid, I don't think so. There are some peculiar properties that are creating a situation where, again, disequilibrium could be stabilized. Now, SU2 group symmetry as well uh, allows for the space-time peak across the local metric to occur. So the left-hand side image, we have a space-time metric, generally speaking, for those that are more visual. And on the right-hand side, for our visual friends again, we have a sort of, um, I guess you could say, peak in which would occur from the metric once certain conditions are met. Now, there may in fact be a potential longitudinal lock-in with these transverse uh, with transverse waves so again if we were to focus on the uh, glass prism example in the laboratory the excuse me the experiencer inside of the glass prism or this energetic phenomenon would experience something of what we're looking at right over here in addition to again a possible Davies unruh thermal bath effect but this would be the visual now the external observer of which I believe to be the case in which much of the literature today in quantum field theory, loop quantum gravity, uh, SU2 group symmetry, is showcasing the viewpoint of the external observer. The external observer would see something like this. Not necessarily the entire uh, template here, but I'm speaking more to just again a, a flat intersection curvature where the blue shift, red shift begins to, you know, create more of a propagative effect that Dr. Pudoff and many others with respects to space-time metric engineering have discussed, where, again, sort of like if we took a bedsheet on one's bed and just kind of whipped it up, would be the same way in which when the space-time metric is voided, after the vectors are summed to zero, 
what then happens is there's a sudden blue shift in energy in the thermal spectrum. Because, sort of like when you are unzipping, uh, for example, the um, uh, jean pocket pants or something of this type, the jean material itself moves aside for that, uh, you know, uh, we could say phenomenon to then occur. And in this particular example, the genes, um, the gene material, like clothing, would represent the space-time metric. So, some thoughts would be that would light propagation and time have direct correlations? Does the manipulation of local objects' masses perturb or effectuate such phenomenology within that of the local metric? And does time exist within photonic and phononic resonance and propagation? These are some thoughts uh, that, that I think should be or could be avidly explored. Now, I would like to thank, uh, truth be told, uh, people from the APEC community, folks from that I've spoken to privately, uh, whether from uh, DOD or otherwise, or from even around the world, for providing a tremendous insight into angular geodesic acceleration which would allow for such energetic phenomenon to occur. And when, you, when I say energetic phenomenon, I'm speaking to a multitude of different potentialities, not just for propulsion. Now, we have the four known forces, as we know. We have the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and gravity. The question becomes, is there in fact a missing key, particularly within general relativity, if we were to follow along Einstein's concept and, you know, given the Schwarzschild metric and all of this metric solution, is there a fifth force that unifies the other four? Maybe there's more than a, a fifth force. Maybe there's multiple forces or multiple integrative approaches. And not only that, but are there multiple ways of tapping and or accessing this fifth force? That becomes another very avid question I think could be pursued based on the previous slides I have presented and or, of course, interpretations from folks in the audience and your own thoughts as well. Now, I would dare to say, this is my humble opinion, multiple avenues towards the same undergird or underlying source would be Dr. Pudov's zero-point energy, of course, and his papers, Dr. Salvatore Paez's super force, uh, Dr. Uh, Sarfati's EVOs, exotic vacuum objects, and of course, existics uh, from our great friend and APEC community member, Gavin. I would like to thank our friend Gavin for coming forward in the way that he did, uh, particularly in the APEC WhatsApp group chat for um, helping others in the community understand and explain his concept of existics and how it could be unified both with classical models and in many other ways as well. I do not mean to speak for Mr. Gavin, but I'd like to thank you, uh, Gavin, for coming forward with your existics. It's a fantastic model in my opinion. Now, again, we are speaking to the different avenues of which this source could be tapped. Now, there are in fact in the, in the laboratory multiple avenues of extraction energetic selection of frequencies, etc., which would be high frequencies, low frequencies, and potentially unknown frequencies and bandwidths, both above and below the current electromagnetic spectrum and the thermal artifact, particularly dealing with the thermal artifact, more so on the lower levels of the thermal artifact, um, in addition to, you know, acoustic ranges and, and you know, um, auditory uh, phenomena, if we'd like to call it such. A, a practical example of a theoretical concept or situation where, again, I'm trying to push the limits here a little bit deliberately in the sense of we see that out of the Institute of Electron Physics, the Ukraine National Academy of Sciences, some tremendous people put out a paper 
on the essence of SGME, which stands for Slightly Generalized Maxwell, uh, Maxwellian Equations. What's interesting is that after the paper was released, the paper had talked about dismissing the Dirac equation for a moment. There seemed to be uh, to allow for more of a unifi um, unified model with respects to Mr. Uh, Krivsky and Simolkik's uh, work. But the paper was immediately attacked. This is where it gets interesting, because the, the paper and the authors were attacked, but the equations themselves were not debunked nor calculated to show any other derivation that would suggest uh, an incorrect or incomplete unification of the slightly generalized Maxwell uh, uh, equations. So it gets interesting, right? We see, for example, that you know uh, people will attack papers, but not necessarily say, okay, here's the math to show why it can't work, right? Now, one thing I'd like to, to also bring up before uh, ending off this presentation is some of my own work, some papers that I have written myself as well. I do need approval for release on these papers, so if anyone is interested in, in uh, obtaining them, you're more than welcome to reach out to me directly at genzpodcast.gmail.com, uh, but I still am waiting for approval, so if you email me now, I will have to tell you that uh, you'll have to wait a little bit, but these are just some papers that I've put together for uh, various groups and um, individuals, and, and also so, uh, truth be told, other papers that I of which I cannot showcase for uh, certain world governments and other uh, departments of, of uh, DOD and so forth. So, with that said, I'd like to thank you all so very much for uh, watching and listening to today's presentation. I hope this provided a little bit more of an insight into really going back to the basics of Lagrangian and Newtonian physics. And then trying to, I guess we could say, understand such from, uh, from there, whether theoretically... And then, of course, bringing it into the laboratory and then being scaled for uh, commercial and consumer use.